A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised. On a cold and wintry night in Worcester, England... Neighbours hear high-pitched screams pierce through the tranquil darkness. Even to the untrained ear, the screams sound as if they are coming from terrified children. Neighbours peer through their blinds in the direction of the screams. They are coming from the direction of the usually quiet home of Elsie and Clive Ralph. But nothing appears out of place at the home. A cautious neighbour decides it's better to be safe than sorry and decides to call the police just in case one of the children is in trouble. Uncannily, and perhaps forebodingly, it was the night of Friday the 13th. For all of the superstition that that date entails, no one could have predicted the horrors that would become evident in the night's lifting gloom. It was Friday the 13th of April, 1973, a date which will forever be known as the birth of the Monster of Worcester. A night when a city, and indeed a country, come face to face with the worst kind of monster, a child killer. You are listening to True Crime Britain. Join me, Rhiannon, each Wednesday as I tell the solved and unsolved stories of some of the most disturbing, mysterious and heartbreaking crimes committed throughout the United Kingdom. Welcome to this week's episode. Worcester, England, sits just 30 miles southwest of Birmingham and is flanked on the western side by the River Severn. It is known as a cathedral city due to its numerous ancient cathedrals spanning every style of architecture imaginable, most notably of which is the Worcester Cathedral, which has proudly overlooked the city since the early 1500s. Whilst Worcester's relatively small population of just over 100,000 residents might make you think that it doesn't have a lot going for it, it is in fact the birthplace of many familiar products and people. Have you ever enjoyed the taste of Worcester sauce? Well, as the name would suggest, Worcester is the birthplace of the original variety made by the one and only Liam Perrins. Then there is Barrow's Worcester Journal, which is believed to be the oldest newspaper in the world. 
for all its small-town qualities, Worcester packs a punch. It was in Worcester in 1951 that David Anthony McGreevy was born to Bella and Thomas McGreevy. They were loving and devoted parents, particularly Bella, who flourished as a hands-on mother. Thomas was a sergeant in the Royal Signals, and therefore David's early years were spent moving from military base to military base and country to country. Despite changing schools frequently and having to make new friends at each stop, the disruptions didn't seem to bother David or his five siblings. The children actually seemed to thrive as they travelled. Life on an army base could be quite regimented, but Bella ensured that the children spent plenty of time exploring the different landscapes of the places they lived. David, in particular, loved to ride his bike and would spend long hours away from home, returning only as the sun was setting, or in the case of Thomas's posting in Germany, when the snow began to fall. Those were the days when children roamed freely, unaware of the dangers which could be lurking in your very own community. In the 1960s, as David reached his teenage years, he decided to follow in his father's footsteps and join the Royal Navy. Bella and Thomas were concerned that David wasn't yet mature enough to make such an important decision on his own. While they were supportive of his plans to enlist, they encouraged him to finish high school first. But David wouldn't have it. He was a self-assured and stubborn young man, determined to prove his maturity and intelligence. Within days of discussing the plan with his parents, he dropped out of school and enlisted in the Navy. It was 1967 and David was just 15 years old. He was initially posted to Portsmouth Naval Base, where he boarded the HMS Eagle and began to work as a steward in the mess hall. He was responsible for clearing the messy tables and general kitchen duties. But David always felt the work was beneath him, and the job thoroughly bored his active mind. He joined the Navy to become a man, to be respected as an adult. And here he was, cleaning up after other men instead. Surrounded by a culture of drinking to excess, and with the growing resentment of his humiliating position, David began using the alcohol to feel the confidence and bravado that he wasn't able to demonstrate during the day. Given his experience with alcohol, it didn't take long for his drinking to become problematic. David began to turn up late for his duties. His uniform wasn't maintained, and he would always complain of terrible hangovers. His evening drinking sessions morphed into foul mouth rants about this officer and that officer, and how hard done by he was. He would go on and on about how he was so much better than being a steward. His cocky attitude and determination to get the last word soon began to get him noticed, and not in a good way. Initially, he was given warnings, and when that didn't deter his behaviour, he would be assigned extra duties as restitution. But the punishments didn't have the desired effect of improving his attitude or teaching him a lesson. Rather, they seemed to have the opposite effect. His drinking got worse and more frequent. His behaviour deteriorated and David began to be destructive. During a particularly bad session, David broke into an officer's wardroom and lit the basket of paperwork on fire. He ran from the room, closing the door behind him. The fire spread rapidly in the small space, and smoke began to swirl out from under the door. David stood drunkenly as he watched the wisps of smoke silently spread down the hallway. 
In a moment of lucidity, he realized the fire was getting out of control and raised the alarm. It was 2.30 in the morning and the alarm awoke the entire barracks. As his fellow Navy men were dragged from their slumber, David panicked and tried to return to his bunk in an effort to hide from what he had done. Once the fire was extinguished, officers set about investigating what had caused the blaze. When it came time to question David, he claimed he was innocently walking past the wardroom when he saw smoke and raised the alarm. As officers pressed him for more information, David's story changed. This time, he told investigators that he had accidentally dropped a cigarette into the bin, which had subsequently caught on fire. But David's senior officers were unconvinced of his explanations. Taking into account all the warnings he had received prior to the fire incident, they decided enough was enough, and he was put forward for a court-martial. David was found guilty of negligence, and sentenced to 90 days of detention. He was also required to undergo psychiatric testing to determine if his behaviour was induced by some mental condition. Whilst the results were never revealed to David, they did result in him being court-martialed. After just four years of service, David's turbulent Navy career was officially over. To his great shame, David was forced to return to live with his parents in Worcestershire. During the last few months of his service, David had started a relationship with a woman named Mary. Whilst they exchanged letters twice a week, they had never met face to face. Upon being discharged from the Navy... David was finally able to make arrangements to meet Mary in person. From the very first meeting at a local dance hall, David knew Mary was the one. She was beautiful and smart, but more importantly, she put up with David's drinking. And his alcohol fueled outbursts had only worsened since he was forced to leave the Navy. Just one week after meeting Mary for the first time in person, David proposed and asked her to marry him. Mary gleefully accepted the proposal, as she too was in love with David. But once again, David's parents urged caution. David was just 20 years old, and his parents didn't believe that he needed to rush into marriage and Bella was concerned that Mary just wasn't the right fit for David. Mary had some medical problems, and Bella worried that she would become a burden to David. And besides, David hadn't had a stable job since leaving the Navy, and he wasn't even in a position to financially support himself, let alone anyone else. Keeping true to his nature... David did not listen to the advice of his parents. He was besotted with Mary. She was the one thing that was going right in his life, and he was determined to give Mary the life she deserved. He knew he could finally be free of his parents once they married, and so following their hasty engagement, David wooed Mary with plans for a grand wedding, followed by a romantic honeymoon. But Mary was getting cold feet. Her family didn't approve of David, not only for the fact that he had no job and couldn't support Mary or her complex medical needs, but word had also gotten around the tight-knit community that David had been court-martialed. He also came across as an arrogant know-it-all, and they believed Mary could do better. In contrast to David's relationship with his parents, Mary heeded her mother and father's advice and called off the engagement on New Year's Eve, just weeks before they were due to be married. 
Waking up on the 1st of January 1972, David was broke, unemployed, single and living with his parents. What was once arrogance and ego began to twist into bitterness and resentment. David spent days inside, rarely leaving his parents' house. Thomas and Bella would organise odd jobs for David through friends, but they all ended in disaster. David wouldn't turn up or would leave the job half done. He complained about the work being below him and he demanded higher wages. After each failure, he'd return home, stealing liquor from his father's cabinet and drinking himself into a stupor. He never helped with the chores, and without a job, he wasn't able to contribute to the household financially. Finally, after months of frustration and no change in sight, Bella and Thomas were left with no choice but to throw David out of the family home. And so it was that David moved into the home of Clive and Elsie Ralph. Clive had attended school with David for a while, whilst Thomas was stationed in England. It had been a few years since the men had seen each other, but Clive was a kind and generous man who wanted to help his friend through the difficult patch he seemed to be experiencing. Clive and Elsie had been school friends, though there was a five-year age gap between them. They married when Elsie was 16 years old, due to her being pregnant with Clive's child. By the time David moved in, they had two small children, and Elsie was pregnant with a third. Clive was a lorry driver for his father's company. He had a strong work ethic and worked long hours to provide for his growing family. Their home was a small two-bedroom flat in the Rainbow Hill district of Worcester. The area was just two miles from David's parents' home. In the early 1970s, it was rapidly becoming an industrious neighbourhood though it was desperately trying to retain its sense of community, especially on Gillam Street, where the Ralphs lived. As other residents were forced out of the surrounding areas, the occupants of Gillam Street drew closer. It was a quiet cul-de-sac of just ten homes, and there were children living in almost every residence. Each afternoon, front doors would fly open and children would run and play around the street together whilst their parents went about their duties. The neighbours all knew each other and took care to watch over the children as they played. The couple's firstborn was Paul, and he was three years old when David arrived. Dawn was 20 months old, and Samantha was born in September 1972. Samantha slept in the bed with her parents. Dawn was in a cot in the main bedroom, and David and Paul shared the cramped second bedroom. Whilst the arrangement might have seemed strange to others, it worked well for the couple. Clive's work kept him away from home for weeks at a time. David was like a second set of hands whilst Clive was working. He assisted Elsie with the childcare and cooking, and despite not having a proper job, he paid £6 per week in board. David was good with the children, and he genuinely seemed to enjoy being around them. He had grown up with four younger siblings, and naturally seemed to relate to them in a way that other adults didn't. He would entertain them for hours whilst Elsie went about her homemaker duties. David played all the usual silly games. He would bounce one or two of them on his knees, play hide-and-seek long into the evening, and chase the children of the neighbourhood as they squealed and giggled in delight. After a while, David had become a regular sight around the neighbourhood. 
he would keep the children in the street occupied while their parents made dinner or tended to their gardens. Whilst he had a reputation as being a bit of a know-it-all, most residents considered him harmless. Although his attitude and mood seemed to improve since arriving at the Ralph household, David's behaviour when he drank remained unchanged. He was still prone to loud outbursts and aggressive behaviour when he drank. He was well known at the local police lockup after regularly getting picked up for being a nuisance at his favourite drinking spots. As was typical at the time in small communities, his father would be made aware of David's antics and would be asked to bail him out or collect him after a bad session. Time and time again, he tried to convince David to lay off the alcohol. But unsurprisingly, David refused to listen. When baby Samantha was seven months old, Elsie and Clive decided it would make the most sense if Elsie got a job to bring in a much-needed second income into the household. The arrangement with David appeared to be going well, and they asked him if he would mind looking after the children more regularly while Elsie returned to work. David was enthusiastic about the idea and quickly agreed to the plan. It appeared that looking after the children and being given some responsibility gave him a purpose and made him feel needed. Clive continued working his regular job whilst Elsie secured a barmaid position at the local Punch Bowl Tavern. It was a perfect setup given the bar was just two miles from home. The close proximity meant that when Clive wasn't away working, he would be able to drop her at the pub and pick her up, leaving David to look after the three children until Elsie returned. And when he got the chance, Clive enjoyed stopping in for a quick pint while Elsie finished up and locked up the pub. By the time they arrived home, the house would be silent as David would have put all the children into bed. On the night of Friday the 13th of April, 1973, Elsie was working a shift at the pub. David knew that he needed to be home in time for Clive to pick up Elsie from work, but he decided to go out for a drink anyway. He met a couple of friends for a pint at a Vauxhall pub, and they began drinking while they played darts and cards. It didn't take long for David to down six pints of beer and begin to get louder and louder. He started ranting and rambling, and then began taunting his mates. He would purposely bump into people as he stumbled to and from the toilets, leaving the other patrons less than impressed. Eventually, one of his friends told him it's time to go home. They've had enough of his antics. David objects and tells the man where to go. By now, there's a bit of a crowd around David, and he's priming himself for a fight. But the friend backs down and walks away, turning his back on David. Rather than calm himself down, David wants to have the last laugh, so he throws a lit cigarette into his friend's pint, tarnishing it with ash. The friend pushes him, and in the end, security removes David from the pub. Just minutes later, Clive arrives to pick David up and return him to the flat so he can pick Elsie up from her shift. He drops David to the flat at 10.15pm and heads over for a pint at the Punchbowl Tavern whilst Elsie locks up. When David enters the flat, the children are in various states of sleep. Paul is already tucked into bed and sleeping, while Dawn is in her bed but grizzling. Baby Samantha seems to be uncomfortable and hungry, 
and David has to walk around with her to settle her down. David is still feeling woozy from his six pints, and he's still angry over the run-in he had with his friend over the cigarette. His patience is wearing thin with the children, and his temper is short. When Samantha refuses to drink the bottle that David had warmed for her, he gets frustrated. He attempts to settle her down by rocking her. When that doesn't work, and he's exhausted every method he knows how to soothe her, David begins to shake Samantha. Gently at first, but then with more and more force. But still, she doesn't settle and she won't stop crying. In fact, her cries have now turned to screams. Her little round face is red and blotchy, while her body tenses and squirms in David's arms. Her screams were like screwdrivers in David's ears. He looks down at Samantha, and he snaps. Samantha is just nine months old when David places his hand over her tiny mouth. As her lips turn blue, he removes his hand and puts his fingers around her throat. Samantha cannot breathe and it takes mere moments for her to be silenced and for her body to stop moving. But David isn't done yet. He takes Samantha's fragile body into the bathroom where he throws her against a wall, causing her skull to fracture. Samantha is dead within moments. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. With adrenaline coursing through his body... David goes back into the bedroom where two-year-old Dawn is lying in bed. He looks down at her tear-stained cheeks and tussled hair. He takes the men's shaving razor from the bathroom and cuts her throat from ear to ear. Dawn was just two years old and had no chance to fight for her life. Dawn is dead within moments. Paul is believed to have awoken during the murder of Samantha and Dawn. He gets out of his bed and lets out a blood-curdling scream, alerting the neighbours that something is terribly wrong in the Ralph household. David picks up a curtain wire which is lying close by and ties it around the four-year-old's throat. This is the same little boy whom he used to play hide-and-seek with. David pulls on the wire and tightens it around the boy's throat, while Paul struggles to comprehend what is happening to him and pours at his throat as he desperately tries to breathe. David pulls the cord tighter until Paul stops moving. Paul is dead within moments. Whilst the senseless and horrifying murder of three young children might seem horrendous enough, this is not the end of the gruesome story. Far from it. David heads down into the basement of the small flat while the bodies of his innocent victims lay discarded above him. In the basement, 
is a wall of tools which Clive uses to work on the home. David selects a pickaxe and returns upstairs. Using the handle of the pickaxe, David attacks Paul, Dawn and Samantha's already broken bodies. He repeatedly mutilates their flesh and bone with a pickaxe. His attack leaves their faces unrecognisable and their limbs barely attached to their torsos. Looking through the rooms, they know that something is desperately wrong. There's blood everywhere, from the children's bedsheets and into the bathroom, up the walls and on the carpet. But there is no sign of any children. Using searchlights, they venture out of the home and into the back garden. Nothing could have prepared them for what they saw next as the fence between the neighbouring property was illuminated. Three tiny bodies impaled upon the sharp spikes of a neighbour's fence. Each of the corpses positioned as if they were prizes being displayed on a wall. This is the horrific final torment of the man who would come to be known as the Monster of Manchester. There's no sign of whoever did this. So police from all across the region are called in to search for the perpetrator. While the police faced the horror of the murder of three children in their otherwise quiet community, Elsie and Clive finished up at the pub and settled into their car for the short drive home. As they approached Gillam Street, they saw the flash of blue and red lights emanating from the usually peaceful cul-de-sac. They approached the police barrier and rolled down the side window to speak to the officer man in the cordon. The policeman isn't making much sense until Clive and Elsie identified themselves as the residents of the very same house that the police were congregating around. The officer notified his superior and the couple were asked to step out of their vehicle. No explanation was given as the two were bustled into the back of a police car and driven to the local police station. Clive and Elsie are perplexed and confused as they are led to an interview room. Where are their children and why aren't they allowed to return home? An officer enters the room and begins asking them questions. What is your address? Where were you this evening? Do you have anyone who can confirm your whereabouts tonight? Who is home with your children? Eventually, the officers decided they had enough information to confirm the young couple were not the perpetrators of the dreadful discovery they had made at the home. And that means they are the parents of the three innocent children who were found impaled upon the fence. The officers were faced with the distressing task of informing Clive and Elsie of what had happened to their three children, whom Clive had seen just mere hours before. Elsie was just 23 years old and Clive 28 when they were told the news that would end their lives as they knew them. Their three beautiful children had been murdered, mutilated and impaled in the mere two hours in which they were gone from their home. Elsie was frantic and hysterical. She screamed into the faces of the officers in the room and begged them to let her see her children. But the officers wouldn't let her near the home. The sight is too gruesome and the children are unrecognisable. Elsie was inconsolable and eventually a doctor was called to sedate her. Such was the trauma that she was experiencing at the news of her three babies' horrific deaths. 
Elsie never set foot in the flat on Gillam Street again. For the police, their interview with Clive and Elsie revealed one key piece of information. There was one member of the Ralph household unaccounted for, and that was David. At 3.50am on the morning of the 14th of April, David was found walking on a street near the home where he committed his heinous crimes. The officers cautiously approached him, unsure of the response they would get from the man they believed to be a murderous criminal. But rather than run or fight, David looked at the officers and asked, What is this all about? Momentarily stunned by the out-of-place reaction, the officer paused before handcuffing David and leading him to a waiting police vehicle where he was transported to the local station for questioning. At first, he denied any involvement in the crime the officers were asking him about. He shook his head and feigned ignorance. But after a few hours, he began to repeat the words, It was me, but it wasn't me. It was me, but it wasn't me. It was me, but it wasn't me. The investigator asked him gently, What do you mean, David? What do you mean? It was you, but it wasn't you. David took a deep breath and began to talk. In graphic and disturbing detail, he described the events of the previous evening. To the disturbance of the interviewers, he didn't leave out any details and his accounts aligned perfectly with what officers had uncovered at the scene. Quote, I put my hand over Samantha's mouth, and it went from there. It's all in the house. On pole, I used a wire. I was going to bury him, but I couldn't. I went outside and put them on the fence. All I could hear is kids, kids, kids. As David finished his story and a cold silence enveloped the interview room, officers still had one question. There was something that didn't add up, something that didn't make sense. Why? Why would David brutally murder and mutilate three children that he appeared to care so deeply for? To this question... David could provide no answer. He simply stated, That is what I've been trying to figure out. He mentioned that the baby wouldn't stop crying, but no further explanation of his motive was forthcoming. David was charged with three counts of murder, and in June 1973, David appeared in court and pled guilty to all charges. The hearing lasted just eight minutes, as there was no defence plea, no motive, and no case of diminished responsibility. His guilty plea meant a trial was avoided, and Clive and Elsie weren't forced to hear the horrific details of the last moments of their children's lives. It was during this period that David became known as the Monster of Worcester. Due to the short court appearance and therefore limited ability of the media to report on the details of the crimes David had committed, David's full name didn't receive as much coverage as the Monster of Worcester moniker. The High Court judge presiding over David's case and sentencing said the murders were exceptionally horrific crimes and David was sentenced to multiple life terms. Each life term held a minimum of 20 years. But David would end up serving nowhere near 60 years for his crimes. 
Elsie and Clive never returned to the home they raised their three children in and shared countless meals with the man who went on to slaughter them. They were advised not to view their children's remains at the mortuary due to the extent of the injuries the children had sustained. The devastation of the murders would affect Clive and Elsie for the rest of their lives. Elsie attempted suicide multiple times after the murders, and within a couple of years, the couple had divorced, unable to reconcile after the deaths of their children. In an interview, Elsie stated, quote, I tried to commit suicide. I was on such a high dosage of sedation from the doctors to try to get me through this. My husband came to me one day and he just said he couldn't cope with it anymore and he was putting in for a divorce. Elsie continues to visit the graves of her children regularly, laying flowers and whispering of her hopes and dreams for the lives which were so brutally cut short. She said, I remember the three little white coffins at the funeral and being in the crematorium with my parents. But that's all. My life had become a blur of terrible pain and the drugs I was prescribed. I never even went back to the house to get my things because it was too painful. I had no photos of the children, none of their toys. I only had one little picture my sister gave me. The only thing that brought any comfort was knowing that McGreevy would be in prison for life. David spent much of his jail term in protected conditions due to the prevalence of violent attacks against child killers. Quote, McGreevy's time in prison has been very much up and down, and that's hinged on the extent to which his fellow prisoners are aware of the crimes that he carried out. He's had a rather unpleasant time being subject to everything, from mild threats of violence to full-on serious physical assaults. This has led to him spending much of his time in segregation or in vulnerable prisoners' units. Despite the protected conditions, he was subject to an ongoing series of attacks throughout his imprisonment. In 1975, David was seriously assaulted by fellow prisoners. Three years later, he was threatened with violence. In 1991, his cell was fouled by other inmates. Just hours later, he was transferred into closed conditions. In 1994, he was transferred to Category D open conditions, but his transfer to Layhill Prison in South Gloucestershire soon broke down after press reports meant prisoners learned of his past crimes and serious attacks were planned against him. In 1995, several prisoners tried to attack him in an open prison, and in 1996, David was the victim of a serious assault. In 2006, David was preparing for a parole hearing and potential release. He was allowed to stay in a bail hostel in Liverpool, which was outside the prison grounds. It was revealed that during his time at the bail hostel, he was allowed to walk around the Liverpool community unsupervised. This is a standard procedure which supposedly enables prisoners to prepare for release. In response to the leaked information about David being able to walk freely around the area, local papers started publishing more recent photographs of him showing an aging and balding man wearing spectacles. The articles were published alongside the headlines, warning the public that the monster of Worcester could soon walk free. David once again became headline news. He was sent back to prison 
and denied parole. The idea of his release polarised the local community, many of whom could recall the details and horror of the crimes he committed in their neighbourhood. His potential release soon turned political, and the then MP for Worcester, Mike Foster, called for David to be barred from ever returning to the city, saying, These were despicable acts of brutality that still sicken. My gut instinct is that this man should spend the rest of his life in prison. Elsie had also come to know about his movements via the news reports. She had objected to his many attempts at parole and had been assured that should he ever be set for release, she would have a say in the areas in which he would be able to move. Elsie later said, They'd seen him in an internet cafe, and when I got to hear that, I went straight to Sir George Young, the MP, and spoke to him about it, and I said to him, They are supposed to keep me informed of any movement like that. Despite all the uproar, David applied for parole once again in 2007. Elsie commented at the time, This man took three children's lives. He should have got the electric chair. If he was released, I'd be waiting outside with a gun. Once again, his parole was denied. In 2007, at his seventh parole hearing, the parole board recommended that David be transferred into an open-condition prison. At the time, an anonymity order was issued by the High Court, which meant David couldn't be named or identified due to the risk of harm coming to him when other prisoners found out who he was. Despite the British Press Association resisting the order, it was enforced until 2013, when it was lifted by the Court of Appeal. The anonymity order had prevented any publication of information related to parole requests during the intervening years, and objectors believed that it provided dangerous criminals with more protections than law-abiding citizens. When the order was finally lifted, the High Court justices noted that the public had a right to know if a dangerous criminal was going to be released. In response to the lifting of the order, Elsie commented, He doesn't deserve human rights. He's not even human. I think about what he did every minute of every day because he took my life away. I can't go to family parties anymore. I can't celebrate anything. I can't and will never move on. For what he did to my three children and me, he deserves the same treatment they got. Death. As expected, lifting the order brought newfound attention to what was by then a 40-year-old case. When fellow inmates became aware of his identity, David's cell was attacked. Human excrement was smeared on the walls and his bed was urinated on. In 2018, David once again applied for parole, and this time, his application was successful. The documentation pertaining to the parole board's decision stated that over the 45 years in custody, David had changed considerably. He has developed self-control as well as a considerable understanding of the problems that he has and what caused them. The psychologist identified a number of factors which make it less likely that Mr. McGreevy will reoffend in future. These included his improved self-control and the fact that Mr. McGreevy has learned to remain calm in stressful situations. He has also shown himself to be compliant and cooperative with authority, which, 
suggests that he will comply with his license conditions. A network of supportive friends in the community were also identified as a protective factor. David had spent a total of just 45 years in prison for the murders of four-year-old Paul, two-year-old Dawn and nine-month-old Samantha. In response to his release, Elsie commented, What this animal did to my children was every bit as bad as what the Moors murderers did. But Ian Brady and Myra Hindley never left prison before they died, so why the hell should he? He put my babies on spikes, for God's sake. He mutilated them, and they died in agony. I wanted him dead, and to suffer like they had, but I was reassured after his trial that his crime was so terrible he would never walk free again. But despite begging them to keep him locked up, I have now finally been betrayed. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and thank you for your kind messages of support, feedback, positive reviews and of course, your patience. I really do appreciate it and I love reading what you have to say. For transcripts, photos, credits and resources relating to today's episode, please visit www.truecrimebritain.com. If you'd like to access things like ad-free, early release and bonus episodes, I'd love you to consider supporting the show by joining me on Patreon, where you could get access to all that and even more rewards from just £1 a month. You can join now by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimebritain or see the episode description. Don't forget, you can also like, follow and or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode. There are some big cases coming up and I wouldn't want you to miss out. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube for regular case updates. Just search for True Crime Britain. If you're already supporting me on Patreon, you can find next week's episode already there waiting for you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week, and please stay safe. If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.